Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori. Hey, playwrights. Welcome to Hey, Playwright, a podcast about playwriting and life. Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori. All right. So a lot has happened since the conversation that we are going to hear today. <laughs> yes. Full disclosure, listeners, this conversation was actually recorded at the beginning of April, I believe. Right, Tori? Mm -hmm. Beginning of April. And since then, so much life has happened um, that, uh, yeah, the, we were all in a different place in April, weren't we? Yeah. Not that I can remember what that was because I can't remember what happened yesterday. But <laughs> I do know that I was still in school. And I am on vacation now from school. Mm -hmm. And and I <gasps> did I tell you that I'm actually missing being in school? The other day I was like, oh, I really wish I was I was back in school. But you know why? I know why. Because remember we were talking about me being a workaholic and mm -hmm. like how I I deal with or I don't deal with hard things. Um, I don't deal with hard things by just burying myself in work. And we got some really difficult news this week. And it was that day that I was just, I was having a very hard time uh, just being, and I was really wishing that I was back at school. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I feel like the last few days, I know, I was kind of laughing and feeling jubilant right at the beginning of this interview because I'm so happy to be back in a space with you recording. But the truth is, the last few days have been some of the most difficult that I can remember. And yes, the, the uh, yeah, I find myself just like just writing, just trying to figure, and that's writing, not writing. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, there was uh, finding out about the death um, of of a friend and colleague of ours of Cortez Johnson. That that was that was really a low point and just um, a lot of of sadness. Because I've I've mentioned this to you before. One of the gosh, he was such a gifted actor and one of the best performances, mm. hands down, that I've ever seen was between him and um, Elliot Vimel Cephas at, uh, at Moxie Theater in Blue Door, directed by Delicia Turner-Sonnenberg. That, that, I'm, just, I'm just so saddened by that. Yeah. And then, you know, the SCOTUS, the continuing horror show about, you know, gun control, and then... Roe v. Wade, I've just, um, I know you and I have talked about it and, and you've said, we just, it, we've got to keep making art. Got to keep making art. And for me, I'm saying people, please vote. And yes. <laughs> um, and, and then, uh, if you if you see somebody needs help, if you're able to help them, sometimes just having a conversation might make a difference. So, um, 
hard news and and it's it's so, so good things have happened too <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard it's kind of hard to even get to those good things sometimes with all the um madness right yes but sarah greenman who mm -hmm. i definitely look towards she's she's my new mr rogers yeah you know? she, like she, the... she's magical for sure yes um but she she said something or posted something about it's okay to find joy in times of grief i should find wow. it so that i can let me see because i think that's so important to to hear um yeah and like and especially you know it's it's hard because as parents as parents who are cynical <laughs> yeah as you and i as you and i both are mm -hmm. um like I think about my kids and I want my kids to to still find joy mm -hmm. and and look at the world with wonder and and you know keep the imagination alive and possibilities and all that stuff and um but the reality is it's like things suck and mm -hmm. they have always this is what I say though right I'm always like they've always been bad um and so where do we focus our energy? And I and I'm really mindful of 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 trying to because I do believe who was I who was I talking to? I can't remember. Was I talking to you about this? It's like I still believe uh that humans are inherently good. Oh, I was talking to my sister about it. That it's it's the structures that ruin it for everyone. The 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 bureaucracy, whatever the structure, whatever the institutions are, I think they are the problem but humans i believe want to do good and so i believe in that i i can't not believe in that i just think that that we have very problematic institutions that mm -hmm. that I'm have not, power yeah. it's structures institutions i told you about this great quote my next tattoo it's in spanish <laughs> Fe en el porvenir porque el pueblo es invencible. Just is like faith in the future because the people are invincible. And so I believe again it goes it's it's the people that are but it's also art, Tori. It's also art. I don't like all the people. I'm just gonna say that. I, again, I think it's <laughs> the institutions that make yeah. the that make the people bad. Because because at the end of the day, I think we want to feel connected to people. And we want to we we want that connection, and and we're finding it, um, however radically we can if we don't have it. You know that's why that's why people are so drawn to these groups that are that that turn people against each other because they're like, oh okay, I can find connection and they accept me and they you know and I can I can be a part of that group. But that's like just we just we're all we all want that connection. So. And people are getting it in the most twisted ways because the institutions are making it okay for those twisted ways to be in place. But I think at the end of the day, as Marsha Norman said, like we just we just want to get home. We just want to get home. Speaking of getting home. Yes, Tori. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's talk about you and your misadventures in getting home. Yeah. So uh we we had spoken on a 
previous episode about that I had an upcoming trip to New York. That trip happened. Um, I took my daughter and there was another girl in her Girl Scout troop. They had raised money over the years selling cookies and whatnot. They earned this trip to New York. They decided that's where they wanted to go. And then my daughter and I went from New York to Albuquerque to see a production of a play of mine that was in a contest that won. And then we made it home. Barely. (laughs) I'm just going to say air travel right now is the most challenging I I can remember in my lifetime. You know, I, I mean, I've been on, I've been like missed flights and delayed and cancellations, but this, uh, when we were in New York, on our way to New York, even we had a direct flight, but it was delayed. The, our flight out of Albuquerque, delayed, 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 uh, until eventually we got on a plane, and we, while we were en route, we missed our connecting flight. We were going to miss it by three minutes, so they rebooked us for the next day. I'm telling you, we got to the airport. It was, it was insanity. I mean, hundreds of people, especially in that Delta terminal at LAX, which everybody's kind of crammed into the back of this terminal. It's It was hundreds of people, cancellations, delays, crazy. They gave us a hotel voucher. And the next day they had rebooked us again, standby on a United flight. And I said, get up to my kid. I said, I know you wanted to sleep in, but we are going to the airport. We're going to get our luggage. And I rented a car and got us home, but it took hours to get the luggage. So, so we covered a lot of ground in New York. List all of the shows that you saw and then tell us which one was your favorite. Oh, wow. You got to pick one. Okay. So, you know, a couple of the things we saw, it was girls' choice, right? They were choosing, they were spending their money, the moms, we were spending our own money. But we saw Chicago, Beetlejuice, mm. but Beetlejuice was a lot of fun. I mean, Moulin Rouge, which I won uh, the lottery for. So Sadie and I saw that for 32 bucks. Nice. A piece. So highly recommend if you're going to New York, that you use all of the apps for the lotteries. Use Today Ticks, SeatGeek, I think was one of them. You can go to the tickets booth. We opted to go directly to the theaters to try to get seats and that that worked out for us. So we saw How I Learned to Drive, Closing Weekend with the original, a couple of the original Broadway cast members and that was being reprised after 20 20 years maybe more um the tracy Letts's new play the minutes and what was the sixth oh how could i forget the sixth one was the tony award-winning musical a strange loop wow uh sadie and i saw that wednesday night the night before we left and it was right after it won the tony so many magic moments Playwrights can fly under the radar for the most part, right? You, you don't necessarily know what they look like. And especially with, when everybody is masked, you might not pick them out in the crowd or you might think, well, they look familiar. But if you're another playwright who knows what that playwright looks like and you hear said playwright talking to someone behind you and you turn around and go, ah, that's all. <laughs> That's Paula Vogel. (laughs) 
Yeah, so that happened. And so she was sitting right behind you. Right, right? behind us. That's, that's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And she did. She was gracious enough to allow me to get a picture. And, uh, and you know, my so my daughter got to meet her. I did tear up because how often do you get to meet someone whose work you just greatly respect and admire who continues to just uh, lift up other playwrights and you know, be, uh, she's just, she was just so gracious and wonderful all around. Just, just a wonderful trip. Good times. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very envious of all of that. It just seems like it was a fabulous time. And I think I wore my kid out though, a little bit at the end. I'm like, we have one more night. What are we going to see? You know? So Mabel, I, anytime you want to do, uh, a theater scene trip. <laughs> I would, I would love to, but I'm a little scared with all of your, you know, your travel madness that you experience. Now I'm just like, oh, maybe. I'm hoping that maybe things will even out because people are just starting to venture back out, right? And I yeah. think, I think it's like the floodgates opened, yeah, and everyone went ah we could travel and you know it's summer yeah it's, it's always going to be busier so what is going on with you i mean since april a lot has happened i don't even remember tori i'm the big thing is i'm not in school right now <laughs> um but i am taking a class so i couldn't stay away right <laughs> i'm taking a class um a dramatist guild institute offering called uh, Genre and Geek Theater, offered by Jacqueline Goldfinger. So we've done one class. Today is our second class, and I actually have to share work today, so I'm a little bit nervous about that because I will be sharing my horror TYA play in progress. Um, But that's been, I mean, it's really nice to be in that environment again. But yeah, aside from that, I don't know, just a few things here and there. I do, I was commissioned by Olympia Family Theater, to uh, adapt The Secret Garden, the beloved classic by Francis Hodgson Burnett. So I'm adapting that and it will be set in the Pacific Northwest. And this week, <laughs> we had a, an informal but very important reading where I um, called upon my most trusted dramaturgical advisors your child, <laughs> my children, and my niece, <laughs> as well as you and my sister. And, and we had a reading and we read the, the whole script and, and then you all gave me some really helpful feedback. So I'm, so I'm just like putting the, uh, the final touches on this draft. Like, you know, after this, it'll go to the, the creative team and we'll see what they have to say. But, but I, it was I, so much fun. I can't, I, I'm really excited to see, what this looks like on stage and how how it continues to develop it's you will recognize remnants of the original but this is a fresh take and i i think it's just incredibly exciting i found out while i was traveling that my play is going to be box of teeth is going to be produced at dragon production theater company and they are the same place that did a workshop reading on Zoom back in 
I want to say it was either November or December of last year. Such a wonderful, wonderful group of people, uh, um, such a supportive team. But that will be August 12th and 13th. They, they're doing kind of a best of Dragon Eggs, and they chose, I believe it was eight short plays that are going to be done. And that is in San Jose. So if there's a link, we'll put that. But if not, that'll come out in our next one as well. But it's just, it's very exciting. Very that exciting. box of teeth is unstoppable. I love, I, I really love the play. I'm so happy that it is continuing to, um, to, to have places in spaces. That's so cool. <laughs> Speaking of places and spaces, Tori. <laughs> There is a place in space really near to my home, and it is called On Stage Playhouse. And today's episode features the artistic director of On Stage Playhouse, James P. Darvis. James P. Darvis is the current executive artistic director at On Stage Playhouse. He has been a performer across the country for decades. I've also, um, I've seen him perform. He is captivating. He really is. <laughs> he is so much fun. But he also, he directs it on stage, but he directs around the community as well. I know he's directing something right now for Out on a Limb at Scripps Ranch Theater. So he is just a, a force in the community and very supportive of other artists and an uplifting the Chula Vista community as well. And he's going to talk about that in this episode about what they do at the theater. Heck yeah. All right, Tori, let's get to it. Wow. I, I was just saying how magical this is to be in person, seeing an actual human being in front of us. I almost don't know what to do with myself. I know. It's, it's weird. <laughs> We've never done this before, so this is very exciting. So yes. where are we? We are at Onstage Playhouse in Chula Vista. With the artistic director, executive artistic director James P. Darvis. Wonderful, and and uh, I have I've had connections with you as an actor, seeing you perform, met you. I feel like in a bunch of different circles, which is kind of mm -hmm. cool. But this was Mabel's first time meeting you, but not seeing you. Definitely not seeing you. But also, I have to say that Tula Vista is my neighborhood, mm -hmm. and um, just I am. I am such a fan of the work that you have been putting forth in this community. You're really pushing some boundaries with the work that you're doing. I love it. Thank you. So I, I'm very excited and inspired as a, as a theater lover, as a playwright. Like I'm just, uh, I am honored that this theater is a part of my community. It's so fantastic. I hope more people in the community realize that it's here for them and it's extremely accessible for them. That's the main goal. When I, I took over in 2019, um, and then 2020 happened. Uh, so, But as I came in, it was very, 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 very important to me that the people, specifically the people on this block, knew what was happening here. And so in order for me to understand how to change the demographic of the people that had been in the seats for 36 years at that time, I needed to figure out why the demographic of people in Chula Vista weren't being represented as patrons and as artists. 
So I went to the census, because that's the best place to find <laughs> out where uh, demographics are. And here in Chula Vista, the last census that I looked at, 72.3% um, of the residents of Chula Vista identified as Latinx. It's humongous, Shocking. right? Yes. And probably the percentage of our patron base that would represent as Latinx would have been between 3 and 5%. Wow. I believe it because I think that is that is representative of, of U.S. theater. I think it is. Yeah. I think it totally is. And how do you make a change? You make a change in your own neighborhood. Mm. Um, I used to be a resident of Chula Vista, but they sold my beautiful condo and we're tearing it down. Um, so now I live in University Heights, but I lived in Chula Vista for about five years and loved Chula Vista. So I started trying to understand why people that were representative of the neighborhood weren't coming into the building. And the first thing I did is I looked back on 36 seasons of uh, work. Um, not all of those are documented, so I should try to tell as much truth as possible. Maybe I went back 10 years, 10 to 15 mm -hmm. years. Um, not one Latinx playwright. Mm -hmm. um, not one play that had uh, Spanish as a, a, a language used in the play. Um, and then I thought back to when I first moved to town. I moved to town in 2008, and a director had asked me to assistant direct a play, and it was at this this theater. I'd never been here before. I had no idea what it was about. And I came in to assistant direct, and then as life happens in theater, uh, they couldn't find an actor, and I had been an actor for 25 years. That was really what my main draw to, to theater was, or what I thought, what I thought, I could be best utilized as was an actor. Um, I've now learned that that's not true, which is great because we continue to grow and we learn and we figure out where we're supposed to fit into things. But I was here and the president at the time, I remember coming out of the theater, out of the theater proper into the lobby and this person was sitting at the desk and I said, have you guys ever done a play? And I believe I probably used different uh, terminology at the time mm -hmm. because I've grown as a person to be more inclusive. But I think I said, um, have you ever done a, a, a play by a Mexican playwright? Mm. And this person said, no, the Mexicans don't come to theater. And I was like, that's not true. I've still, there's so much There's so much theater in Mexico proper, right? Mexico City is an amazing art city. And I was like, what? That's not true, right? So then fast forward about eight years and I uh, continued to work here as a director once somebody gave me that uh, opportunity and then I realized, oh, that's what I do. That's that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and I directed a couple plays here under the fabulous, wonderful, amazing artistic direction of Terry Brown, who is an icon in this building, um, should be considered an icon of Chula Vista. Uh, so I got a lot of tutelage under her, but our perspectives are very different. Um, our reasons for being involved in theater are very different. Theater to me, I'm a, I was a young, overweight, homosexual boy planted down in the middle of Vermilion, Ohio, which is in the Midwest. I grew up on a farm with pigs and cows and chickens, uh, Reba McIntyre, Conway Twitty, uh, Hank Williams Jr. Uh, that was the life, right? The barn and, and the cleaning and the this and the that. And I saw a play when I, um, this girl that I 
I guess had a crush on. I mean, I guess you're attracted to whatever you're attracted at whatever age. But we were in fifth grade, and I loved this girl, and I followed her around, probably because I now realize that she was, I thought she was the epitome of beauty, right? Uh, she had beautiful hair, and she had big, big green eyes, and, and she was just very, uh, I was drawn to her. So she came into school one day, and she said, uh, my mom's taking me to an audition for a play. And I said, what, what, what's happening? What? And she's like, it's at the Lorraine Community Hospital, which is where my mother worked. So I went home and I said, Mom, uh, Kirsten said that she's auditioning for a play at Lorraine Community Hospital. What is that about? And my mom, very hardworking woman, a nurse, farm mother, mother of two boys that couldn't be more opposite in any way, shape, or form. Uh, very supportive, always taking us to the football games and the baseball games and being the room mother. She went on every single uh field trip I had my entire life. Um, she, I hear her sigh, and she's like, oh, it's this thing, it's the follies, I'll take you there. I said, okay. So um, I went with my a cassette tape of Live to Tell by Madonna from the movie yes, At Close yes. Range, <laughs> and uh, had never done anything like it before in my entire life. But I walked into this room, and I put my little tape recorder down, and I pressed play, and I sang over Madonna, and lo and behold, this uh, director cast me in this solo. I was Frankie Avalon in Greece, but it was all these, it was follies, right? So it was all these little things. Um, so we did the scene Beauty School Dropout, and so I was about, I think, eight, right? Fifth grade, eight, nine, I don't know. Um, and so the women that were in the beauty parlor chairs were from the auxiliary board. So they were all like 70 to 80, and oh, it was I the little shtick. Um, yes. And so my mom would drop me off at rehearsal or Kirsten's mom, you know, they'd work that out so we would get to go back and forth. But she was never in the room. She didn't know what what was happening. And uh, which is extremely dangerous to think about a parent not being in the room uh, at that point. But that was the 80s, I guess. So she came to the opening show with her mother, my grandmother, and her sister, my aunt. And I have, I left my entire life in Cleveland, Ohio. It will be 14 years on May 4th. Um, and I only took what I could bring in my car, and luckily I brought this one thing, and it was a little tape from like the like if we were if you were journalists, you have that little, little tape recorder. Little so my mom took the tape recorder into the Palace Theater, and she pressed play, and so here I am at the top of like a sixteen foot staircase, right? And she's with her mother and her sister, and that's what is the warmest part of the memory to me um i turn around and i come down and i start singing um and my mom has a, a very midwestern mouth uh probably not as politically correct as uh one should be uh but she's an amazing wonderful woman and i give her every uh, ounce of credit for making me who i am today but so i can't hear myself on the tape because all i can hear is her talking to her mother and her sister saying things like holy that's my what is going how why when did he mom 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 that's my kid right and so i still have this little memory right um but when i got into the 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 space it was the first time uh coming from vermilion ohio had one uh african-american student uh, not an African-American family. She was adopted, so it was all white people. 
with one African-American student. Um, at that point, LGBTQIA wasn't very represented outwardly. Um, but I walked into this huge theater that's one of the most beautiful theaters I've ever been in, in my life. It's the, my first experience. It's called the Palace Theater in Lorain, Ohio. Um, gorgeous, just went over a renovation. There's like angels and cherubs and, and, and there's like the boxes and it's, it's huge, right? It's humongous. Um, and I walked into the first day and saw black people and brown people and uh, uh, tall people and short people and thin people and uh, larger people. And through the course got to realize that this person liked boys and this person liked girls and this person liked both of them. Um, and so being an eight, eight to nine year old kid, realizing that the space was a space that I needed, right? And my higher power at that time gave it to me out of nowhere because Kirsten Steers was like, hey, my mom's taking me to this audition for this play. And so my perspective on what theater is, is a place to have conversations about things that you may or may not be comfortable doing in your day-to-day -day life or in your family unit or in your drama class at school. That shit's hard, right? When they're like, well, we have a drama class at school, but it's in the middle of Lorraine, Ohio, which is not a peaceful, calm place. And if there's a student that wants to get in touch with their emotion and, and to be able to have a conversation you have all these other people that are just in the class because they have to be there, right? And so how do you get a younger person to open up about their experiences or what they would like to experience or, or something that they saw that jarred them to have a feeling, right? Um, so that's my perspective on theater and what I've been focusing on um, since I've gotten to, uh, what is it, curate the um, material. Right, that's my job. I get to curate the shows that we that we produce each year, but so inclusivity is uh, paramount to me um, and this space now. And thankfully, the board um, fully one hundred percent supports that. There was a little bit of a pushback going into the 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 transition into my position, um, but then the summer of twenty twenty happened, and Mr. George Floyd was murdered, and I said for me to be here, this is what we have to do. This is the only type of work that I will want to have represented in the room. Neil mm -hmm. Simon, great. Mm -hmm. It's perfect. It's fantastic. It, it served its purpose. And at the time, it was rather progressive. Mm -hmm. Great. Agatha Christie, everybody loves that. But there's no room for that here. There's no room for that here anymore because of what's been happening in our world. Um, so yeah, I think uh, the past artistic director and the present artistic director had two very different reasons for, for needing the art in their lives. And so my goal is to make sure that the things that are put on the stage are not only representative of the neighborhood proper, but of, of the world. And we can talk about things and you don't have to agree and you don't have to agree with me but the point is to have a conversation about them. Um, so that's the goal. And so uh, circling all the way back to the beautiful compliment that you fed me as soon as we sat down and started talking, thank you. Because sometimes I don't know if it's being, if it's being recognized. I don't know if it's being um, accepted for what it is. And it's, it's been a challenging time. I'm a cisgendered white male. What? Thank you. God, I'm LGBTQIA, right? So I can grasp onto a little <laughs> tiny bit. 
of marginalization, <laughs> but still my experience isn't anywhere near as uh, challenging as the experiences that you'll witness next season um, at Onstage Playhouse, because the season that's happening now was cultivated prior to 2020 and prior to this call for change, but it's still very reflective because it's I was the one who picked those things, but uh, yeah. I, I'm really curious about uh, why did you, have you always, well obviously you didn't always want to be, you wanted to be an actor, but at, like what made you say yes or were you seeking out uh, this position as, no. okay so no. So no. can you talk about how that <laughs> happened? How did it happen? There was a man uh, who I um, can't speak highly enough about um, in San Diego, a man who um, saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. His name is Jerry Pilato. Um, he lives so deeply within my soul and my heart, uh, one of the greatest people I've gotten to come across. And I was acting a lot, and he had cast me in this play called Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, which was a Charles Bush play, which was great. It was like a late night thing down in Ocean Beach. Um, it, crazy and nuts and insane, and it was fun. Um, and while I was working on that uh, piece with him, that was my first uh, introduction to him. And he was just this really cool guy who um, supported his theater 100% on his own out of his pocket. Uh, because it was a necessary thing for him to continue to survive in life was to be able to produce art. Uh, so that's A, why I think he's amazing. And then B, I uh, had a friend, a mentor of sorts, who had seen a play in LA, uh, a revival of a play, um, and had called me and said, hey, I saw this play, you need to be in it. I bought you a copy of the script. I think you're, you're perfect for this wow. play. And so I read this play, and it was called Burn This by Lanford Wilson. And uh, I fell in love with the play. I fell so in love with the play. And so I'm getting dressed for a performance. And I have like my corset on and I'm all tucked in and I got my fishnets on and my boots and my wig cap. And uh, Jerry um, is a one man band. So he is like setting up the crackers and the wine and the this and the that and making sure everybody's here. And I saw he had a moment to himself. So I needed to take that moment away from him and make it about <laughs> me. So I went up to him and I said, Jerry, do you know this play? And he said, yeah, yeah, I've directed that play four times in San Antonio, which is, I, I believe, I know he's from Alabama, but I know he spent a lot of time in San Antonio and did a lot with the theater scene there. So uh, he said, yeah, I've directed it four times. And I said, oh, could you could you direct it here? I, I'd like to play this role. He's like, no, but you should direct it and I will pay for you to do so. And I was like, what? I'm not a director. And he's like, yes, 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 you are. I've, I've been watching you. You're, you're, you're this. And I was like, um, so that man uh, put his money where his mouth was, which is uh, a saying that, that I feel I want people to be able to uh, describe myself as, putting my money where my mouth is. And he produced this play for me, and I directed it. And the play is considered the last great yuppie play uh, from 1989. And uh, I read the play, and when I was now having to focus away from this one character that I wanted to be and have to look at the entire uh, story and how I thought the story would best be representative of, say, San Diego, because that's where we were putting on the play. Um, I was like, oh, 
because it is for white people. Like if anybody cast the play, it would be for white people. And this is a long time ago. This is like 2013, maybe 2014. And um, I was. it's a ballerina and this mm, tough rock'em sock'em robots guy. Uh, and they're in love and her gay roommate and this man that is supposed to be the man that she's supposed to be in love with and fall in love with and her boyfriend and fiance at the beginning of the play. But I was like, there's an actress I'm enamored with in town. Her name is Melissa Coleman Reed. She's not in town anymore. She's in LA, I believe. Um, and I took her the script and I said, would you, what do you think about this? And she's like, this is great. You want me to be in this? And I was like, yeah, I want you to be in this. This is, there are lots of African-American dancers, lots of African-American ballet dancers, right? That nobody shines any lights on. And then um, I had worked with Brian Burke. I don't know if you know him. He's an insanely talented actor. I think he's up in LA now as well. Um, uh, Asian-American descent. And uh, I couldn't think of anybody that could play this guy who's like every other word was F you, like throughout the play. And they made this amazing chemistry. And then I was like, well, it looks like I'm messing with convention here. Let me find the straightest acting LGBTQIA actor to play this at the time. I mean, it was written in the 80s. So mm -hmm. I could have seen like Charles Nelson Riley or Jim J. Bullock or mm -hmm. some very um, comfortable, funny interpretation of what queer is right mm -hmm. on the stage um so i i i, I cast uh, jerry burke who is so straight it's so funny that he's not um and then i took the one conventional role and cast a extremely handsome white guy to play the representation of what your world's supposed to be and i loved it i loved watching it i loved um hearing reaction to it and it was that that process that made me realize that the lens can be shifted by the artists that are portraying the roles. And you still portray the role 100% to what the playwright has written it, right? We never change words. We never change where somebody's from. We never change any of that stuff. But just having an artist that doesn't look like, um, who played it? Carrie Russell just they just did a revival of it on Broadway a couple of years ago, and Carrie Russell played the role. Joan Allen, Joan Allen, and John Malkovich played. Uh, yes, they were these these two characters. Um, but you can open the world to so many other people, um, which in my younger lack of observant representation, I thought was a great thing to do, which I still think is a great thing to do. But now representation has to go a lot further, right? And the stories have to be written by people um, that have firsthand experience of uh, whatever culture is, is the center of the play. Um, so that's kind of shifted, but that's why. So I directed that play and uh, the marvelous, amazing, talented Terry Brown came and saw it and then asked if I would direct a play here um, that she had saved in a drawer, I think she said for 10 years because she didn't think somebody had the ability to tell the story right. And I was like, oh, I've only done this shit once, I don't know, <laughs> but let's see, right? And she uh, gave me this script and I read it in my bed at night, late at night, and I called her first thing in the morning. Uh, she used to drive to work at about six and I would drive to work at about six so I could call her at a crazy hour and we would talk. And I was like, holy 
what? Yes, can I win? What What do I have to do? Um, and it was a Bruce Graham play called Coyote on a Fence and is a play about a white supremacist young boy on death row um, that is just still to this day one of the most beautiful plays I've ever read in my entire life. Um, and she was all gung-ho and was in the season, ready to do it. I go and see a movie on some a Tuesday, a Wednesday afternoon by myself and I missed like four calls from Terry Brown and she says, the board, the board needs to, the board needs to talk to you tonight. And I was like, well, sure, whatever. I'll come and talk to this board that I had never met. I don't, I don't know who they are. And I walk in and it's white, right? Uh, white and old, old and white. And uh, somebody had Googled the play and they simply did a Google and a YouTube search. And the play dealt with some heavy shit, like that's the point of the play, um, but done with so much humanity and so much beauty that this one person um, only, only like a, a two minute and 15 second excerpt of this play and was just, oh, we can't do this. How, how could we do this? I said, well, did you, did you see the next scene and then, and, then, and, then, and then the end and then the this and then the that and then the woman and the this and how we um, are a product of our environment and if we don't get out of our environment, we, we, we take those things on ourselves and they might not even be what we're supposed to truly be, but if we stay within a bubble, we don't get to grow and we don't get to empathize and we don't get to understand. And they were like, no, I didn't. And I was like, well, I think you should read the play, so I'm not gonna waste any more of my time here because you haven't, you, you haven't done your due diligence to, to do the research on the play. Here's the play. You guys give it a read, right? And then give me a call back um, if it's something that you're interested in doing. Um, and I left. And then apparently they read the play and they, it was one of those like split vote things, right? Yeah. Um, but pushed it over the edge, came and directed this play here, um, which was, uh, I mean, the, Terry had done some really envelope pushing powerful things um, but it was like, let's talk about black and white and let's talk about the Ku Klux Klan and let's talk about mass shootings and let's talk about this stuff. And it was, uh, Bruce Graham wrote it so beautifully that it is, um, you fall in love with this character and, and uh, you, as playwrights, uh, structure I'm sure is extremely important in how you, I don't understand how you guys do things that you do, but the structure has to be so important that we fell in love with this boy before we knew what he was doing here um, and it was magical because you could see the innocence of this young boy and then the words come out of his mouth words that are were inherently programmed by somebody else and then he tells the story of the only person that loved him was this person and this person was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and it was the only group that embraced this young boy and all this stuff had happened and it was just like heavy and beautiful and wonderful and um, so that I started directing shows here because of that and then I directed uh, a Bears Good People which mm -hmm. is fantastic it's about a down on the luck woman middle-aged woman trying everything she can do um, to not see the person that she thought she was supposed to be in love with and it's such a beautiful story and we did that here and then um, my mom is a nurse and my mom had read a book called A Piece of My Heart. And I did uh, speech and debate, big dork, right? Uh, all four years. And my senior year, I finally did this play and I made it to like the finals 
And this girl did an excerpt from Peace of My Heart where, you know, we had to play all the characters and we had 12 minutes, whatever, all that stuff. And it blew me away. And then I remember my mom telling me about Vietnam and my mom, uh, my uncle, my mom's brother uh, had done photography in Vietnam. Um, and so I bought the play and I read the play and I was like, I, why don't, let's do this. This is all women. This is all, all women on a, this is all women and one man. And I love how um, the playwright as many plays that I've seen generalize one woman as a reflection of all women, this playwright did that, I'm assuming, as a, a technique. Uh, she was very obvious about it with one man who played all the different men. Um, but it was beautiful, and it happened here. And it, it, it was the first show I ever worked on that got a Craig Knoll nomination, which is huge uh, for a Best Ensemble play. And uh, they just kept asking me back. And then Terry um, has a, a progressive illness, um, and it continues to progress. And so I think you sit down at a certain point and say, what, what can, this is what I try to do with this space, because people already ask me, when are you leaving? And I'm like, I just started. What are you I'm talking about, here. right? <laughs> uh, but there's this constant turnaround people like to, to see, or they think I want to go somewhere else. I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to stay here. Mm -hmm. I want to do this here. Um, also, nobody else would <laughs> Beware. Um, no college education. I was there for like three weeks. That was it. Um, high as a kite. Um, but so uh, Terry was like, well, hey, this this is a, do you want to do, do a managing director type thing? And I can kind of shadow you and show you how to create a season and yeah, rights and budgets and the board, right? Which is like a, sometimes a We've done a lot of work on the board here currently, but sometimes it seems to be like a force of oppression instead of a, por uh, a force of support, uh, which in my, again, uneducated opinion, it has to be supported. If the board doesn't support the vision of the organization, what's the point? And I don't want to come to a meeting every month and just get pissed off and, you know, have to say ugly things to people that I truly respect and support. Um, but so, yeah, uh, then she passed it on and COVID happened, but I got to say uh, the board doesn't look like our world and there's a problem, so we have to fix that. I was a board member at first because on stage for 36 years was a community theater. Nobody received any compensation for the time, talent, and energy. It was all just volunteer based. Mm -hmm. And so I was on the board, which was great because I got that vote, right? I got to to vote on things and then um, I think I may have been described as somebody who can um, eloquently persuade people that they know what they're talking about and so that worked and then I was like I am spending more time here than I do with my day job and I, I can't do that this is why people burn out um, and so I was like hey things need to change first of all artists have to get some money they have to get some money every single artist has to get some money. You can't continue to profit off of these people because you are profiting off of the people, mm -hmm. right? You're profiting right. off of the people. Um, I don't care if you've never gone to college and you're on stage for the first time, you, your mom and aunt and cousin and 17 friends, they're all gonna come pay $25 for a ticket and then that money goes back into the account, which, you know, 
gets poured into the next production, this, that, the other thing, um, which is another problem I had with the nonprofit, which I've changed here as well, about what you do for the community. You're supposed to be uh, doing stuff for the community. Thank God COVID happened, in my opinion, because I got to really think about these things and then create programs to um, actively make them happen. But so, <clears throat> pardon me, I uh, said everybody has to get some money. And then I would talk to these young artists. Um, and the thing I say to almost everybody that's in the room is that you are in charge of the price that you put on your tag. And you have to make sure. You can change the price at any time and you can change the price because of the opportunity or who you're working with, but there has to be a price and people have to respect that price, right? And I luckily have cultivated basically a company of actors. I mean, if you've seen the last couple of shows here, there's a lot of the same faces are here because A, they're disgustingly talented, but B, they also want to uplift this building and, and, and they want to be able to give the opportunities that have been given to them to other people, right? Um, so always know the value of what's on your tag, but in order for there to be value on their tag, there has to be a number. And I would say this over and over again, and then I was like, I'm a hypocrite. I'm doing this for nothing. For nothing. I'm doing this because my ego needs to be fed where people can say, oh, he's a great artist. Well, I am a great artist, and that's not debatable at this point any longer. And I said, I need to get receive compensation for the work that I do. And then the compensation that we're giving for the artists always has to increase. It always has to continue to increase. And your job as a board is is finances and, and fundraising. That's your your side of the deal. I will handle everything else. I Up to yesterday, I just hired an assistant. They gave me uh, that. But I change the toilet paper. I buy the pens. I buy the ink. I do the hangers, um, every single thing. And, and I said, I will handle all of this for this, and you have to go out and get this. Because if Sandra Rees works on the stage this year for $300, she's never gonna work on the stage for less than $300, and it has to be more the next time that she comes into the space. So they are cool in that, but they're getting shaky, right? Because COVID, they just threw money at nonprofits, right? There was all this money. So we have a lot of money. We have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the renewals of those grants are not um, coming as quickly mm -hmm. and as... Uh, they're not giving us any money this year. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, how do you, how do, you do that? But um, I don't know what we were talking about, why I'm doing this. So I watched Terry, and Terry was fantastic with um, young adults. Uh, 16 to 25, she cultivated this environment for them uh, that gave them a voice. She did uh, an amazing Spring Awakening. Heather's, uh, not Heather, she didn't do Heather's. Um, Carrie. Carrie. Um, and I would, and Carrie was great because it was the, her last show here and I was m really shadowing her, right? Like I was like next to her the whole time. Um, and to watch the love, respect, and admiration that she gave to these young artists and that they then returned it to her was amazing, right? So that's like the biggest thing I learned is that you have to make sure that you are cultivating a space where every single person feels comfortable, respected, and valued. And if they don't, you gotta shut it down and you have to have a conversation and then you have to come back because nothing's more important than that. The show is not more important than that. What's important is the energy that fills the room. 
Um, and that's something I learned from Trey Brown. So when they said, are you going to do this? I said, yes, I'll do it for free. And then I was like, wait, you're a hypocrite. Then you have to pay me. And that's where we are. That's why I'm doing it. Before we started our interview, we were talking about, and I believe this this goes right into your artistic mission with the book. Yeah. I saw a book in the restroom and I went, oh, this looks like an artist I, I might recognize. So could you talk about yes. using the book? Yes. And we walked in and there's anti-racist baby, like right as you walked Which in. just arrived yesterday. Oh, I was so right excited. <laughs> and I put it there. Like I drove from <laughs> University Heights with it just to put it there. So um, George Floyd was murdered in the streets. And there was a huge shift in what was going on um, everywhere, right? Um, but the arts community, um, to choose my words wisely, because I am not a person of color, but um, took that horrific experience and said, things need to change everywhere. And the arts community in particular said, things need to change for us. We don't feel comfortable in the room. Our stories aren't being told by people that look like us. We're not getting an opportunity to play ourselves as we would like to play them. This, that, and the other thing. And so I was on an airplane driving home. Uh, driving home. I was driving. I'm also an airline pilot. I am so many things. I was on a plane flying home the uh, day in which that event took place. And um, I landed in Cleveland, Ohio, and was looking at my feed, which is all San Diego, and I was seeing what was happening in La Mesa mm -hmm. specifically. It seemed to really focus there. Um, and I was like, oh my God, what's happening? I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is happening. And I go to bed, and I wake up the next morning, and I realize it was happening in Cleveland, Ohio at the same time, but I didn't, I don't have very many contacts in Cleveland, Ohio, right? So my feed is all out here. And I was like, this is, this is um, A, wrong. And B, this is igniting something. This is igniting something, um, a movement. This is igniting a movement like um, <clears throat> when I did the play about Vietnam and I saw the protests about Vietnam, uh, of, of voices that have been muffled, silenced, and told to shut up for so long are not anymore. This is what's happening. So I called here and I said, hey, I need a Black Lives Matter sign put in the uh, window right now. And then I need the marquee taken down and just put we are listening and, and that needs to happen right now it needs to happen right now I need you to do it right now someone needs to do it right now and so that happened and um, the response the response from people who are so small that a slogan or a um, a showing of support to something that they a don't understand and b didn't take the time to try to understand it. That was the response I got. Um, I got um, Marxist, socialist, fag. Um, this building is so important to me because people like Terry Brown said, uh, use your voice, do it, we're going to support you, do it. So when I am in my day-to-day -day life feeling pressured or stressed, I come here all by myself. Um, and I think of all the things that um, I have gotten to do, how I've gotten to grow, and the very, very small things I've been able to give to somebody else to help them grow. And so I'm doing that, and I get the mail, and uh, there's a card addressed to me and I'm like oh this is good somebody's somebody's saying yes right 
And I opened the card, and it as soon as I saw, which is just my personal connection now, it was an American flag. And I said, oh, this is not what I'm what I was hoping it was going to be. And I, I read the letter and it's calling me all these names and a police hater and we've been a patron for da-da-da-da-da-da. We will never come here again. You're destroying things and I can't wait for you to be uh, pleading at the mercy of people to... Like, it was insane. And I was like, I still have it. Uh, I will never get rid of it. But um, So I read it and I was like, no. No. You don't get to do this to me here. And I took a picture of it and I put it online, and I hashtagged Onstage Playhouse and Black Lives Matter and all this stuff, and it went everywhere. It went all around the world, mm -hmm. and then people started donating, mm -hmm. um, and they were donating, and they were donating, and then on my flight home, um, uh, my other flight, I went back, and then uh, Channel 3 calls me, and I do an interview in the bathroom in <laughs> Texas, and then the Union Tribune calls me, and when I get out of the car, and it was all this stuff, and I was like, wait a second. I have been conditioned to receive a threat and back down mm -hmm. my entire life. Um, I don't know why I didn't do that, right? I don't know where I had grown as an adult that has, or as a person, not even an adult, but just as grown as a person, where I said, no, no. I want people to see. And then this person tried to send another letter, um, but addressed it at the park over there. And it was a follow-up. And it's like, we're going to piss on your doorstep, right? All this stuff. And I was just like, what is happening? And I would get these emails from people that would say, we can't believe you're caving to this Marxist, uh, racist organization, all this stuff. And I would respond to each and every one of them. And I would say, well, I'd love to have a conversation with you. There's a great coffee shop down the street. Why don't we, you know, never, never, never a, an acceptance of that. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the times what I found was we have a ticketing system that we've had for five years. So if you ever came to a play and bought a ticket, your name is in the ticketing system. And so then I started looking at the names um, and most of them had never been here before, mm. right? And I'm like, who then takes it upon themselves to drive past a theater, which I don't understand what you think would be going on in a theater when there's a social justice uh, crisis happening all over the world. Like what, yes, this is, the, this is a place that's going to do that. Um, the Guns and Ammo store in Lakeside probably isn't. So if, if you were to drive by the Guns and Ammo store in Lakeside and see Black Lives Matter and this, call them, right? Like maybe, maybe you would then, I don't know, but it's a theater, right? Um, where we're here to allow every artist um, the ability to express themselves in, in whatever way that they would like to. So here is our asking for a friend. What fictional family would you most like to join? What fictional family would I most like to join? I don't know their name, but it would be the family that's represented in Tracy Letts' August in Osage County. Really? Yeah. You are a... You're brave. Yeah, I was, you are a glutton for punishment. Yes. Oh my goodness. Each of those wow. family members had been traumatized Ooh, yes. by the family. Okay. Um, and 
I think that happens so much. Um, I know I was traumatized by my family and not, um, I don't think they intentionally tried to do that. Um, yeah, um, that family. I would love to be in that family um, when they healed. Okay. 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 You know okay. what I mean? Okay. Or, or, or the, the play that follows up that play with how they've healed. Yes. Um, and probably only two of them would heal, yeah. right? Like they all wouldn't heal. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I, I think that some of the younger siblings would have been able to heal and then see what that beautiful relationship would be like. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you realize, um, how old is your child now? 14. TikTok. Oh, yeah. TikTok. Are you on TikTok? No. TikTok is amazing. Yeah. Listen, this is why TikTok is amazing. Because, what is it, Gen Z? Is that this this generation? X? No, X is me. That's you. Z or Y? These kids are so brave. And they are literally going to change. Like, everything. My little Gen X uh, generation, right? Um, we tried to change some shit. There was a little affair. Um, a lot of us are gay. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of that stuff happened. Um, but again, almost like the civil rights movement with white people's involvement in the civil rights movement, we seem to drop the ball on like the 10 yard line when we only had so much more to go. We did the same thing, but these kids are no joke. They are talking about trauma and they're talking about, um, what's it called? When you set your guidelines, your own boundaries, right? And, and they're talking about this stuff and it makes me so inherently hopeful. Because they're not, the, the one thing I love about an algorithm mm-hmm. is that I don't see uh, ban all abortions on any of my feeds, right? I don't see that. That's not my algorithm. My algorithm is if you want one and need one, get it. I don't know. I'm not up to, it's not up to me to make that choice. But so these algorithms that these social media um, apps create, they realize they're not alone. They're not alone in saying no. This is not going to happen anymore. They're not alone in saying, hey, why when you guys are making like voting areas, do you do this? No, that's not going to happen anymore. Right? I, I see that this stuff is going to change. It's amazing. So TikTok is my favorite thing. I've never made a TikTok. Um, but I, my, my phone tells me, it's like this week you spent this amount. And I'm like, son of a bitch. This is why I don't <laughs> go to sleep anymore. Um, yeah, TikTok. I dig it. I dig this young generation. I, I'm hoping whatever I can do in this space for that generation to come and see. Uh, by the way, if any teachers are listening, I have emailed all of you multiple times. Maybe the addresses are not correct, but you and your students are invited to any performance 100% free of charge. And I don't care if it's 30 of them. You are all invited. Um, you are all always invited. Artistic director at onstageplayhouse.org. They can all come. Wow. They have to come. That's incredible. I don't understand it. They have to come. <laughs> they have to come in here. I take my I take my child to as much theater as I as I possibly can. Yeah, she's for sure. It's yeah. crazy expensive though. If you want to take yep. them, it's so expensive. So that's something that we talk about quite a bit on the podcast is access. Yeah. Access. If you've never been here before and you want to come here, you can come here for free. Or if you want to come here and you have the funds to come, but you're not sure, come in, see the play, pay me after. Pay me what you think, pay me what you think it is worth. What you, what worth you found. I am not kidding. Anybody is welcome in this building at any time. 
and we have to be able to support the people that can't afford to do it. So if you can't afford to do it, if you're a gazillionaire and somebody says, hey, you can come to the theater, don't pay me till after until you can tell me what the worth is. And if you think the worth is so much that you wanna make sure other people, then you pay me $500 for your ticket because your $500 ticket is the same amount as somebody who has nothing paying $5 for a ticket. So if you think there's worth and you wanna help spread that word, you pay for other people to come too. Why can't we do that? Why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? I don't understand. Ah, we need, we need like you times a million. Like, can you? Can no, you I'm, the, that snowflake I cut out in second grade. I, I'm, there's no one else like me. They taught me that, I listened. Um, yeah, but you guys gotta talk about playwrights, right? Because I've been rambling and that's what you do. And I have made a commitment that each season there is one brand new work that is not a staged reading, that is not a 10 minute play, that is not a 30 minute play, that is a full length play that we pay just as much for as we do for Tracy Letts plays or um, Char White's plays, whoever's play, right? So it takes a year to cultivate it. So I'll do um, four separate table reads with the playwright and a group of actors. Um, and um, usually two to three playwrights in the room at the same time. Then they uh, sit there, they read it, everybody gives a little bit of whatever, and that playwright knows that they're the ones that make the choices, right? These are just people giving, giving ideas. Um, and then we get back together in two months, and we read it again with the same people in the room, and then we do that two more times. So there's four times of that. Then we do a reading of it, for an invited panel of people, which are playwrights, directors, artistic directors, anybody that will respond to the invite. And the playwright has uh, specifically asked three questions. And those three questions are the only feedback that they are interested in hearing. What they feel at this point needs to, you know, whatever it is, those people submit those answers to the playwright. Then the playwright gives me a final draft. And in the next season, it gets a full four-week run of 16 performances. Wow. Because you have to put your money where your mouth is. Mm -hmm. You do, but I also um, can really appreciate how you are supporting the playwright through the process. Because one of the biggest challenges for playwrights, no matter what level you're at, is getting that reading. Mm -hmm. Getting um, actors and then getting people that you trust you know, to, to listen and, and give you some feedback. Or just for you to hear it so you can go, oh, you know what, that's... I really need to look at that moment, or I really want to expand that, or whatever it might be. But having the opportunity, having the space, having the resources, sometimes that is a hurdle that is hard to get over. I mean, you know, I'm not opposed to having people just come to my room or to, like, to my house. Right. But having that support mm -hmm. is, is so crucial for the Process well, what I love about it is that that playwright addresses the room on day one and says, this is why I wrote the play. This is why I think the play is important. This is why I want the world to hear this play. Right? So that playwright gets to set those boundaries of yes. the, this is my perspective. I know as a, as a director, as an actor, not so much because I'm under the... Um, direction of a director and mm. it's the director's perspective right of the right. playwright's work right. um that type of thing but as a playwright it's 100 percent your you have decided to spend hours upon hours upon months upon years upon 
however many words that you've written, right? And if you can share that with the same group of people over a year, and sometimes you have to reiterate it. Like I, I stood up for one playwright. <laughs> so Blue Period was the first play to go through this process. And it um, opens here in June, July, July, and closes in August. But um, so that was cultivated here um, in that process. And uh, that playwright, I'm always like, reiterate to these people who are trying to make the play their play, mm -hmm. why you wrote the play. Mm -hmm. That I want the playwright to be able to say, this is what I'm concerned with, this is what I'm focused on, this is why I wrote the play. If you can add anything to that, great. If you wanna add stuff outside of that, no ma'am. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. not, I've been in these readings. All the, all the theaters would call me for years and years to do the readings of new plays with the playwright. Yeah. And then I would listen to people like, um, it's like that, um, the, my biggest childhood uh, fear movie was Piranha. If anybody saw that when the piranhas would go, right? I hated it. <laughs> but it felt like I was watching these playwrights just get thrown into this, this pool of piranhas because I didn't know who the playwright was. Like they said, James uh, will pay you a nickel to come down here and read this play mm -hmm. yeah. um, for the playwright. And I'm like, well, great, of course I'll do that. And so I'd come down and I'd read the thing. And then they would be like, do you have any feedback? And I'm like, I don't know what the, this person this person hasn't told me no I don't have any no how could I have any feedback I don't I don't know why they wrote the play they have to tell then they have to ask you for the feedback that they want I'm a director I get unsolicited feedback right I invite people literally privately now because of COVID all of the critic circle judges come on a day by themselves before we open I invite them to that right I'm ready for it Wonder Woman like do whatever it is you want to do but I don't think that in a in, in cultivating a, a new play that that's an environment that I would want to be a part of. No, yeah, it can go off in so many different directions because everyone has an opinion. Right. So mm -hmm. they're going to come in with the, I think you should. You, should, you should. You should. You should. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mabel and I know because we we're teaching artists as well and we have co-taught and have witnessed. Have witnessed. I sat in one one time and I was like, I, I, from the beginning of my journey till now, my, I've gotten stronger in my voice mm -hmm. as an advocate for artists, right? And uh, at one, I was like, hey, you're not listening to them. Mm -hmm. And he was like, mm. and I was like, I'm sorry. And I'm sure I'll never be invited back at this table again, but you're, you're doing exactly what you told this person not to do. Yeah. Um, take yourself, it's not your story. Mm -hmm. It's their story. Mm -hmm. What do you want to do with the story? And then as a, as a person who reads thousands of plays, I mean, the largest part of the budget other than rent is my expense reports that say play for perusal. Like, like, like you know what I mean? They like come every day and that's like, they used to be $9 a pop. Now they're like $16, $17 oh. to, to buy a play. Is it really? Yeah. And then even if you do it on an e-reader, which I am so old, I hate it. I hate it. I, I made I it in my hand. I, I like to lay in yeah, my bed. I like I do to do too. whatever I like to do with it. I like the physical um, one, too. It's like $11, but it's part of my job, right? It's part of my job to read as many plays as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. And so then... The greatest job. In the, can I can we just take a moment to, <laughs> to envy that? that? Seriously, I Wow. Just... The part that's horrible is when you... So I went in blindly. Like, I didn't know 
thank God so much turmoil has happened since uh, they let me do this. Um, like uh, racial justice plays, stupid Google search, right? And then I get all these and then I don't want to read critical reviews. I don't want to read a review of somebody seeing the play. I want to read a synopsis of the play or an interview with the playwright and then I'll order the play and then I'll read the play. But it's, um, I realized that the first time I got to do this, I had two and a half years. Mm. Now, now, now I don't like, because I, I like now I just pitched so every February I have to slate the season for the next season so I just did that and they just approved it and then I'm like I have to read another hundred thousand plays oh my God, in the next wait. 12 months okay so we're gonna throw this on you because we did not send you the email that we normally do we always leave our listeners with something to do because mm -hmm. we are a play podcast about playmaking. So do you have a writing prompt that you could leave the listeners with? Way to put them on the spot, Tori. Mm, I totally <laughs> put them on the spot. No, I just want it to be good. Do you know what I mean? Like I have 7,000 already they're all, I'm sure they're my all brain. Uh -huh. As soon as you ask that, um, I could never follow up with any of them. That's why I'm not a writer, but... Um, I looked in the mirror and I saw a younger version of myself. That's a prompt from James P. Darvin. Somebody <laughs> write an amazing play and then I'll produce it. Yay! Do it, somebody do it. Somebody do it. Wonderful. This has been oh my gosh. really, um, uh, I'm going to treasure this conversation. For one thing, I'm getting to spend time with you in this mm -hmm. beautiful space but getting to actually physically spend time with you. Right. And and to hear about all of the community building that you are doing here with Onstage. This That's is cool. what we need. This is this is the model. You are the model for what we've been talking about. And then Corey. think about if like the community building of Onstage continues to be successful, we could work on a community building of theaters within the San Diego community mm. that actually support one another. Mm. Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh my goodness. Because I know somebody had a porcelain bathtub and nobody would let me borrow one and I had to buy three of them. I'm just saying. I'm not hung up about it or anything. <laughs> James, thank you so much for sharing space with us. This this was really, this, this has been incredible. Incredible. And yeah. You're more than welcome. And listen, thank you. Uh, being 100% honest, sometimes I um, have doubt in the things that I'm doing and if I'm doing them the right way. And the past, uh, what, hour and 15 minutes that we've spent together has given me the amount of validation that I need to continue on for like another day. So thank you. Day, another yeah, decade. Another <laughs> century, please. You guys are the best. Thank you. Thank you. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it.
All right, Tori. Mabel. <laughs> <laughs> I loved hearing everything that Onstage Playhouse is doing in the community and on stage. All right. All right, Tori, what do you got coming up? Anything, any 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 big plans as we enter into July? I need to get some writing done. There are a couple of contests I would like to enter and I need to I need to finish finish up some plays. I know you've got some projects. Uh but Tori, I really have to clean my house because I'm doing a thing um in a few weeks and uh Yes, you are. Do you want to say what the thing is? Yeah, I'm 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 having uh I'm I'm <laughs> I'm celebrating 20 years of wedded bliss with Yay! my beloved and uh, and we're going to do a little thing here and so that means that I have to clean my house. So I I have to start now because <laughs> there's a lot there's well, a lot there's a lot to take on. I look around and I'm like, "Oh, not great at cooking." Not great at cleaning. Me either. But I'm great at being. <laughs> I'm a good listener. Nah, I'm a marginal. <gasps> Tori! Oh my gosh. <laughs> what? So I started watching. I didn't start. I like actually binged. I watched the whole thing. There's a there's a thing on HBO. I don't know if it's new or not because there was a long period that I didn't watch any TV. So I'm not sure where things fall. But um. Brene Brown, Atlas of the Heart. Do you know that? Okay, so it's a, it's a series on HBO where she goes through like the different emotions, defining what each emotion is. Okay. And I have uh, realized, thanks to Brene Brown and the Atlas of the Heart audience, that I am actually really terrible at empathy. <laughs> like, you gotta watch the empathy episode and... Oh, <laughs> All the people that I kick it with, which is not that many, but of all the people that I kick it with, you would probably see it most because everything that she says you're not supposed to do when so when someone is like telling you a thing is like totally like textbook. I do what you're not supposed to do. And I do it with you all the time. So you should watch that episode and be like, oh, Mabel sucks at empathy. But <laughs> so I'm trying. I will try now because now that I know I'm going to make a better effort. But it's like stuff like, you know, trying to fix the problem. And, oh, uh, yeah. and you know, and trying to be like, but the glass is half full and all, all the kinds of stuff because I... Mm -hmm. Because as you know, I, I have a problem sitting with emotions. Mm -hmm. And so. Maybe that's why we're friends. Cause I've, I, people, even family members or other people close to me are also hard at sitting with emotions. So I've, I'm used to somebody saying that. Yeah, but that's me. not good. That you're not getting your needs met. That sucks. <laughs> That's yeah, terrible. but I really am used to somebody trying to either fix or not, just not hearing what I'm saying or, you know, or trying to point out all the good things that are happening. Yeah, so I'm kind of used to it. That's it's okay. okay. No, it's not okay. Because here's here's the here's what I've learned. All right. So when you tell me that something's wrong, so tell me uh -huh. something something that went wrong. Uh, We're playing right now. Oh, geez. Well, now I can't think of anything bad. Well, you can just make <laughs> something up. We're just role-playing. 
Well, well, I mean, it's the really devastating decision by the Supreme Court. Okay. Tori, what does support look like? What do you need from me? Okay, this is really foreign to me. <laughs> but that's what I, that's my new that's my new uh, response. Wow. <laughs> what does support look like? How can I help? That's so interesting because it's so rare that somebody does that, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So I would yes. say then that I'm not the best at it either. I mean, I try to be. I consider myself an empath, but I, I did too, and now I'm like, no empath. Yeah. Shoot. But really fascinating, especially because as playwrights, um, we, you know being able to identify those emotions uh, I think is really important and, and working with people who aren't great at identifying emotions initially necessarily, you know, that mm -hmm. is, and just me, I'm not great at identifying emotions. So I, I found it to be very helpful. Yeah. So, so, but, but, but also recognizing that I have fallen short in our relationship. And so I am trying to do better. Aww. When are we going to renew our vows? <laughs> <laughs> if you're still listening, please uh, give us some love on, on the socials. Give us some stars. Give us a review. Um, repost, retweet. Do all the things. And uh, and check us out on HeyPlaywright.com. Yeah, the website has all of the show notes and all of the, you can get links to all the previous episodes. Mm -hmm. um, you can see what we look like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's, that's it for now. Cool. All right, Tori, until next time. Until next time. Bye, Playwright. Bye, Playwright. Bye.